Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. I'm Marianne Freiberger. And I'm Rachel Thomas. So Rachel, I have a task for you. Tell me everything you know about information in as few sentences as possible. Okay, so information. Well, um, information is power. We live in an information age. Most of modern life would be impossible without information. I guess information is what enables us to do things and make better decisions. I don't know. Is that good enough? Well, yeah, but what is information? I mean, what's it actually made of? Oh, okay. Well, it's not really made of anything. It's kind of abstract. It can have a physical form, I guess, like on the pages of a book or inside a computer or stored inside our brains. But somehow that's not what really defines information. I guess what makes information so powerful is that it can exist in so many different physical formats. But it doesn't seem to be properly connected to the physical world somehow. A piece of information is still the same piece of information whether it's manifested on the pages of a book or on a computer screen. Yeah, and here you've put your finger on something that has bothered some people for quite some time now. Information, which is this all-powerful thing that rules the modern world, cannot be satisfactorily described in terms of physics. And it's not just modern life that relies on information, but all life, since even the simplest of life forms, is only possible because its DNA contains information that can be copied. And still we have no way, um, in terms of physics, of getting a handle on information. So in this podcast, we will look at a new way of looking at physics, developed by physicists at the University of Oxford, which they claim can describe information in purely physical terms. And this new framework supposedly can not only shed light on various problems that are currently puzzling physicists, it also has something to say about the evolution of life itself. And as well as all of that, at the end of this podcast, as usual, we'll explain some maths in one minute. The new way of thinking about physics is called constructor theory, and it's been developed by David Deutsch, who is one of the pioneers of quantum computing, and Chiara Maletto, both from the University of Oxford. Here is Chiara Maletto explaining what she thinks is missing in physics, as it is usually done, that leads to it being unable to describe things like information. The context uh, is that physics has been uh, developing really well uh, with uh, one kind of approach, which is the approach of, of describing the world in terms of um, trajectories of, of objects that move around in space-time and the um, initial conditions of, of these trajectories. So, for example, you you know you, you got a ball and you want to uh, decide if you hit it in a certain way or in a certain way uh, wh where the ball can go. Um, and so you use a trajectory to describe the motion. And the assumption of the current way in which physics proceeds is that everything in the in the universe uh, in physical reality can be explained this way so in in a sense if you you know if you had um, a way of specifying all the trajectories of all the objects in the universe and their initial conditions uh, then you'd had said 
you know, everything there is to say about physical reality as a whole. Okay, I think I can see what she means here. Newton's laws of motion tell you how objects will move through space when they're subjected to a certain initial force. Our laws of gravity also tell you how objects like planets move through space under the influence of the gravitational pull of another object. Even quantum physics, which describes how the smallest building blocks of nature behave and is famously strange and weird, is based on this premise. You try to say as much as you can about how those little objects move in space and time given some sort of initial conditions. Exactly. This way of thinking about physics has obviously been hugely successful. After all, it's taken us to the moon and beyond, but it does have some problems. For example, if you're looking at a physical system made up of many, many objects, for example, a volume of air made up of gazillions of molecules, or even a system of a few planets all exerting a gravitational pull on each other, calculations can get intractable because you would then have to follow each of these many objects around and their interactions. And what is more, this approach of thinking about the world can't take account of the what might have been rather than the what actually is. Now constructed theory, instead of thinking in terms of the trajectory of objects determined by initial conditions, thinks in terms of entire systems and then tries to specify what kind of transformations of the system can be made to happen and what kind of transformation can't possibly be made to happen. So it's thinking in terms of what's possible and what's impossible. So the way in which constructive theory uh, provides constraint about the physical world is to uh, declare uh, that certain transformations are either impossible or possible. When you say that a task is um, possible, uh, what you mean is that there is no limitation to how well it can be uh, performed by an object um, which enables the transformation and then retains the ability of causing it again. So this object is the uh, constructor and the constructor is in general an abstract um, um, catalyst in a sense. So it's, it's an object that can um, bring about a transformation uh, and crucially retains the ability of causing this transformation again. So I, I said the catalyst because that's an obvious example of, of something that behaves in this way. Um, you can think of more uh, of other examples. Of course, uh, computers are, are such objects because when we use them once to perform a computation, we accept them. We expect them to stay uh, largely unchanged in their ability to cause the computation again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> So we're supposed to think of the world in terms of physical systems rather than the individual components that make them up. But then are we supposed to describe all these possibly very complex physical systems? And on top of that, are we supposed to describe every possible constructor that is all other physical systems that can possibly cause transformations of these other physical systems? That's crazy. If I understood correctly, then all sorts of things count as constructors. A person kicking a ball, the sun exerting a gravitational pull, a kettle boiling some water. 
even, I don't know, some alien doing something we've never heard of on another planet. We can't possibly describe all these things and all the transformations they cause, can we? No, no, it's okay. Relax. We don't need to. So I'll give you a very simple example of something we are already familiar with that works in the same way that the principles of constructive theory are supposed to work. So think of the conservation of energy. Now that's a pillar of fundamental physics and it's the idea that energy can't be destroyed or created from nothing. Now this is really a statement of what is possible or rather what is impossible. Given any closed physical system, there isn't a transformation that brings about the creation or destruction of energy in that system. In other words, there isn't a constructor that can bring about such transformations. So here we have stated the principle without having to describe the system it applies to, the transformations involved or the constructors involved. So in constructive theory, even though constructors appear in the name, you actually never need to specify the constructors you're thinking about. And the aim of constructive theory is to describe all of physical reality in terms of principles that are similar in nature to the principle of conservation of energy. So is constructive theory designed to replace all the physics that we know and love? Newtonian mechanics, Einstein's relativity, quantum physics? No, its principles are just supposed to constrain the laws of physics, just like we expect any law of physics to adhere to the conservation of energy, so we would expect all laws of physics to adhere to the principles of constructive theory. Okay, so I have to admit that all of this constructor theory stuff takes a little bit of getting used to. But to make it concrete, tell me, how can constructor theory help us understand information? Okay, here is Chiara Maletto again, telling us how constructor theory can help us define objects that can carry information. So that's information media such as books, brains or computers, or in the example that Chiara uses, lamps that can communicate messages between ships. When you think of an object that can contain information in the informal sense, uh, you want that the object um, has some specific properties. And if you look at these properties, they, they are not just specifiable by saying what the state of the object must be. So let's think of, let's say, a, a lamp, which can be used to communicate um, you know, from, let's say, one boat to another distance. And this lamp can be, is red and it can be either on or off. Now, when the lamp is off, the fact that it can communicate some kind of information to a distant observer depends on the fact that um, it can be put in a different state, which is the state on. It's the capability of this lamp to switch from on to off and vice versa. So that's one uh, property which you try to, if you try to explain it in terms of dynamics and initial conditions, um, you, you, you will somehow fail because the capability of being put in one state or another uh, is something that has to do not with what happens, which is what you say with trajectories, but with what uh, could be made to happen. So that's the key. So the idea here is that information can only exist when there are more than one possibilities. And this makes sense. If you ask me if I had tea this morning, then my answer is only meaningful if I could have had something other than tea. 
If you knew that tea is all there was in my kitchen cupboard, you wouldn't even ask the question. Uh, and the other property that you want for the lamp to be able to communicate or to be used to, to uh, embody information is that these two states, off and on, can be uh, copied into other physical supports, for example, uh, you know, the brain of the observer that's passing by and so on, or another lamp if you want to repeat this communication scheme, uh, but just by using one lamp and then another and then another. So once you specify these two properties, the copyability property and the other property, the fact that you can switch uh, one state into the other and vice versa, um, you have uh, singled out a set of physical systems out of all possible physical systems as those that can carry information. Once you have a way of defining information media, so that systems that can carry information, you are then able to describe and or define what you mean by information itself. As Maletu just said, an information medium is capable of being in more than one state. The information it carries is then defined as the collection of states it can be in. So in the example of a lamp, that's the state on together with the state off. Using these ideas, Maletto and Deutsch have developed a whole constructed theory of information. It's built around what they call universal principles of information, similar in nature to the principle of conservation of energy we talked about earlier. Now, this theory, the constructed theory, isn't predicated on any existing theories of physics. So not only can it encompass all the theories we have explaining what we might call classical information involving bits, etc., but it can also encompass quantum information, which people hope will underlie the next revolution in computer science. In fact, Maletto says that constructive theory may provide the framework for taking quantum computing to the next level. Well, let's leave the future of quantum computing aside for the moment. Is there something concrete that Marletto and Deutsch have been able to do with their theory? Well, yes, to stress test the theory, so to speak, Marletto has been applying it to things that are currently puzzling physicists. And that includes thermodynamics, for example, and we'll have a look at this again at the end of this podcast. And it also includes the mysterious and fascinating boundary between quantum physics and classical physics. You can find out more about this by reading our constructive theory articles on plus.maths.org. But what I would really like to talk about is another area that Maletto has applied constructive theory to, and that is life itself. So in, in physics, in theoretical physics specifically, uh, there has been a tradition of, of um, physicists, uh, such as even the founding fathers of quantum theory, um, who thought that somehow the laws of quantum theory should break down somewhere, uh, when, um, especially when it comes to, to entities that are alive. And the, the reason why I enter that um, particular problem that I address in that work is that, uh, of all people, uh, Wigner, who is a kind of one of the founding fathers of quantum theory, suggested the idea that a self-reproducing cell 
somewhat violates the, the laws of quantum theory. And I think he's got this very interesting short paper, very speculative, where he's trying to make the point that having a self-reproducer under the laws of quantum theory is extremely unlikely or is extremely improbable um, or considerations along those lines. Then the question that um, when you're trying to rebut such a claim, what you would like to uh, clarify is, so we have a theory of uh, how life has evolved out of uh, no life. So, you know, this is the Darwinian um, natural selection. Um, what you can say is that the, this, this explanation in terms of natural selection is very far removed from physics. It never actually makes contact with, with the fundamental laws of physics in any way. Now, Chiara has looked at this problem of how life may be incompatible with the fundamental laws of physics through the eyes of constructor theory. The work I produce with constructor theory is to take um, the theory of natural selection in its uh, information theoretic essence and try to uh, derive from, from it constraints on the fundamental laws of physics um, so that um, we can understand whether natural selection as it is is compatible or not with the laws of physics that we currently have. And I think this is a nice uh, complement to, 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 the, to the theory of evolution because, of course, it's important to clarify that the concept of you know, replication and the fact that replication uh, can occur under the laws of physics, etc., etc., all of these things that the theory of evolution takes for granted are somewhat um, compatible with the, the fundamental interactions that nature gives us. Otherwise, we would be in trouble. Wow, that's very reassuring. Thanks to constructor theory, we now know that life is allowed under the fundamental laws of physics as we know them. If it wasn't, then either this would mean that we're actually dead, or it would mean that the fundamental laws of physics are wrong. But now, thanks to constructor theory, we're back in the game. So how well established is constructor theory? Are physicists around the world reformulating their ways of thinking using it? Has constructor theory even reached the mainstream of physics yet? No, it hasn't, which is why Maletto has been working on problems that are currently puzzling physicists in order to prove the suitability of constructor theory. The whole thing is still a work in progress, and it's not even entirely clear yet if the constructor theory program of describing all of physical reality in its terms will succeed. But Maletto isn't scared by failure. Yes, and, and also I think if this doesn't work in the way we expect, then there will be a reason for why that is. And I think this will be interesting. It will be an interesting reason. So, um, you know, there are these jokes about being interestingly wrong. If I think there are lots of papers out there in that were written maybe by the you know founding fathers of quantum theory that, that happened to be, um, I mean, turned out not to be quite right. But I think they, they contain a lot of insights in various things. And uh, to a, a smaller degree, um, the, the, the stuff that we are doing, uh, because it's probing this new area and in, in, it's going in directions that are very different from the standard ones, is bound to happen, is bound to kind of stumble upon things that um, will, will change the way we think about things. Even though maybe the, even if, if the current 
tools that we are developing are not going to work out or may not work in the way we expect, whatever we'll, we'll find will be very, um, you know, will change our perspective on reality. And I think it will uh, serve as a, as a tool for making progress in general in physics. So I think that's exciting. So we've now come to the point in the podcast where we explain some maths in one minute. Now, we mentioned thermodynamics earlier in the podcast, um, and there is something called the second law of thermodynamics, which has become infamous for being a bit odd. Rachel, I challenge you to explain the second law of thermodynamics in one minute. Okay, so loosely speaking, the second law of thermodynamics basically says that things never get simpler of their own accord. So a closed physical system never becomes more ordered, Rather, they have a tendency to become more disordered, striving to some kind of equilibrium state that's the most disordered state possible. I'm currently recording this in my bedroom, which is proof of how disordered things come when you don't put any effort into them. For a famous example, imagine whizzing up an egg in a blender. Now, at the start, the yolk and the egg white will be separated, but soon, as soon as you switch the blender on, they'll become thoroughly mixed up. And no matter how long you keep the blender going, you will never see the yolk and the white separating out from each other again. This is in accord with the second law of thermodynamics. The situation which has the egg molecules separated into yolk molecules or white molecules is more orderly than a situation which has them all mixed up together. Therefore, the blender is never going to put the egg back together again. The reason why this is odd is that this implies some kind of directionality, things only go in one way, and that clashes with the fundamental laws of motion that guide behaviour of individual particles, which are always reversible. Indeed, you would only be mildly surprised if you were watching an individual egg molecule and it retraced its path to where it started. That's entirely possible. The second law only appears to hold when there's enough particles, but how many is enough? And the general consensus, given this problem, is that the second law isn't really fundamental in some way. It only holds for large enough systems and is somewhat approximate in nature. And in case you're wondering why the term thermo, which you probably know stands for heat, appears in the name of this law, it's because an earlier version of the second law of thermodynamics says that heat always flows from hot objects to cold objects and not the other way around. There's a conceptual link from the ideas surrounding heat to ideas surrounding order and disorder. And interestingly, both these areas can in turn be linked to information, which is exactly what constructor theory set out to explain. So you can find out more about this on plus.maths.org by searching for thermodynamics or searching for something called entropy, which is a quantity that measures the amount of a disorder in a system. Great, thanks. So that was the second law of thermodynamics and its problems in one minute. And we can now also quickly explain what constructor theory has to say about the second law of thermodynamics. In our egg example, we can think of the blender as the constructor transforming the egg for, from whole to mixed. The fact that in theory all egg particles could retrace their paths doesn't mean that the blender or any other constructor can actually make them do this. Even if you ran the blender exactly backwards, the result clearly wouldn't be a fully formed egg. It would just be a more mixed up egg. 
Now, once you separate the constructor out from the process it's meant to bring about, so Deutsch and Maletto suggest, you see there's no contradiction. And just as a blender scrambles an egg, this takes us to the end of this plus podcast. And we very much hope you aren't scrambled by constructor theory. The music in this podcast came from Yusa and the track is called The New Normal. You can find more of Yusa's music on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.